Well, good morning again. The running joke through Corinthians has been like, well, that's a fun sermon. So just to remind you, we've got this one and the next one next week where we're finishing up our series in Corinthians. And then the week after that, we're going to do a time of question and response, which if you've been around Mosaic for a few years, is something that we try to do, especially on longer series out of books of the Bible like this one. So we're going to be doing that in two weeks. And I would encourage you to be a part of that, maybe prep some questions, read through Corinthians uh, if you haven't been already kind of in between. We've skipped a lot. It's the nature of trying to cram 15 chapters into 11, 12 weeks. Uh, and then even on sermons where we preach and pick texts like this one, I cannot cover all of that in one, that's like a few hours worth of a lecture right there. You could preach multiple sermons just on that passage. So I understand that there are some things that we have skipped over or that we've moved quickly through. And so I would encourage you to be a part of that uh, Q&R Sunday. And if you want to, you can go ahead and ask questions online. Uh, we'll post in the next couple of weeks some ways that you can ask that through social media, or you can go to the website, and there's a form there where you can ask questions and uh, go ahead and submit those, and you'll be able to ask them live as well. But it, as I said, we are moving into our uh, end of our series here, and we're in the second to last chapter, and just a spoiler alert, we're not going to make it to 16. Uh, we're going to take two sermons out of chapter 15. And so Kyle will be preaching from chapter 15 next week as well. And you can be praying for Kyle. He's at another church preaching this morning. A friend of ours that is a pastor uh, lost his friend. And so Kyle is over there preaching for them. So if you keep them and BCC and Chris Culver in your prayers as well. Um, but in Corinthians, we are moving to what the big fancy theological word for this would be, to the eschaton. It is a fun word to say, and you may have no idea what that means, or you may know exactly what I'm talking about. But it is the end of things, the end of time as we know it, uh, the end of all. So we're moving to what theologians would call the eschaton, and Paul is moving the people of Corinth in his letter to this like discussion. What does it mean that Christ is risen? And Kyle's really going to delve more deeply into that next week. But we're focusing for now on this idea of resurrection. If you've been with us through all summer, this is the fifth problem that Paul is addressing to the church of Corinth. Uh, all of 1 Corinthians has been through this flow or this idea that we've repeated multiple times. Paul is addressing a problem that he sees in the church of Corinth. He's taking that problem and he's telling them that they need to look at it or respond to it through the lens of the gospel, not in the way that they are responding to it. So to start from the very beginning, the initial first problem was unity, right? There was, unit, there was division in the church. There was a lack of unity. And then Paul was saying, you guys are responding one way. We're always going to struggle to be unified. It's natural. We need to like, push for this. It's not going to just happen easily most of the time. You put a group of people in a setting together and tell them to live life closely with one another and to pursue good things together, you are going to find times of disagreement. He's never condemning the idea of disagreement. What he's saying is the way you approach, the way you respond to that disagreement, the way you respond to these things needs to look different through the lens of the gospel. You're not responding with the gospel, you're responding out of your flesh. So he says, respond with the gospel, because through the power of resurrection, you have a reason to be unified in Jesus Christ. So that's the way he approached the first problem. He goes through and he's approaching all these problems. So we dealt with food, we dealt with sexual integrity, 
We dealt with uh, power and division. We dealt with uh, worship last week. And he does this again and again. And so he's doing this for the final time. Their problem is their belief or understanding in the idea that someone could be resurrected from the dead. Everybody's cool with that in here. Like, oh yeah, of course people can be resurrected from the dead. It's a common problem. It's a common thing. Like in our own ways, we have our wrestlings with it. What does that even mean that people could be resurrected from the dead? Death is something that we joke about, that you know everybody's going to face it. It's, everything is final. Death and taxes, they're like the two things you can't escape. And yet, we proclaim as Christians, as, as believers, that Christ has victory over death. And that we, as Christ followers, have victory over death. It is natural and understandable that they would have wrestled with this. And there was bigger philosophical movements of the time that were uh, going against this, that Paul is speaking to. And there are philosophical and bigger arguments of this time and of this age that would say, like, that's not true. Some of you may know people or may yourself be in this camp and wrestling and processing with like, well, I think I believe in Jesus, but like that whole resurrection of the dead, the miraculous, the metaphysical, the, the things that are outside of ourselves, the divine, like those things are really hard for me to grasp and wrestle with, to, to put my mind around. And so what you see is Paul addressing this idea through these problems, because what he's saying is that, that through the gospel, we then approach this differently. We approach these ideas, these philosophical, cultural, societal understandings, human understandings. And so he's really challenging now a mental aspect. Much of the Corinthian life up until this point that he was addressing was like more relational and the way we interact with people. It was a lens in which we saw our daily life how we interacted with others, how we interacted as a corporate body, how we interacted with uh, people that we were, were attracted to, things of this nature, sexual integrity, how we interacted at dinner parties. He gave very practical advice, and this is a much more existential and philosophical idea. How do you wrestle with an idea that is central and core to the gospel when it is not natural for society or culture to kind of just buy into it? The response from the gospel is different than the response of most peoples. So, let's talk about this for just a small second. Because one of the things that he's getting at again and again through this is if we're going to respond with the gospel, we need to have some common understanding of what the gospel actually is. And Paul, throughout Corinthians, wants to say that the gospel is an announcement from Jesus that, or about Jesus that opens up a new reality. Again, kind of philosophical or existential idea. But that is what he means by, in light of the gospel, you respond differently. Because there is a new way of living and being because of this person named Jesus. Because of what he's done. And so he's predicating everything in the, book of, or in the letter of Corinthians on this idea that Jesus opens up an entire new reality, an entire new way of being. So he asks a lot of the people of Corinth. He understands that to live the way that he's calling them to live is to ask something of them. He understands that it is not always going to be easy. It is not always going to be safe. It is not always going to be practical to do the things that he's calling them to do. 
It is natural to look at some of the things that Paul has laid out on corn. and go, man, that just doesn't make sense. It's natural to look at it and to think to yourself, like, I don't know if I can live that way. But he's saying you can or you should because of the gospel. Because of Jesus, there is an announcement that there is a different way of existing and living and being. There's an announcement, the gospel is an announcement of a kingdom that has come or is coming. Of a king that is coming or has come. Evangelion is the Greek word for gospel. It's where we get our word evangelism, evangelist, because it is an announcement or a proclamation. This isn't a uh, Christian idea. This isn't something that is uniquely tied to the first century church or anything like that. In fact, it was a uh, political idea. If you go back and look at Roman and Greek history, there, there was this way in which they would announce kingdoms. And a lot of the language that we see in the First Testament or in the New Testament in the first century, is political language that was being used around Rome at that time. Caesar is Lord. And the announcement of Caesar coming was the gospel. It was the Evangelion. It was a proclamation that the king was there and had arrived, and he would bring peace. The peace of Rome. And he would bring goodwill on earth. A lot of this language that we are very comfortable using with Jesus is, is language that has a, a center or root in kingdom language, very political language. And so when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about a new citizenship, a new kingdom that Jesus has made possible. And that has to remain true today. I'm going to get into this in just a little bit more in a second, but I think for a lot of us, when we think of gospel, we think primarily of the resurrection of the dead. That what will happen then at the end. For Paul, he doesn't want to hold that off until just then. He wants to say that the gospel is this new way of being that is predicated or hinges upon Christ's resurrection and what will happen at the end. So think about this with me for a second. All through Corinthians, what we have seen is Paul trying to lay out this way that if there is an announcement that Jesus has opened up a new reality, a new way of being or existing, if he's opened up a new way of being human, then if that is the case, if that is the good news of Jesus Christ, that the king has come, that there is a kingdom of heaven at hand, here and now, if that be the case, then our lives should live and operate and be ordered around a certain way of living that is in line with that kingdom, that practices the realities of that truth. That's the whole argument of Corinthians. So really, what he has been setting up to this point hinges on 1 Corinthians 15. It's like at the very end, all, he's saying all that I've been saying, if this thing isn't true, then none of what I have set up until this point matters. Because it is the reality of resurrection that makes what we do as believers matter. It's the reason, it's the ethic, it's the, like, the cause of. It's what makes it capable. It's what makes it possible. It's what allows us to be these people of resurrection. 
Now, what we have a tendency to do in our modern age when we come to this problem that I think is very real for us as well, that's what I think has been fascinating and important in this time in Corinthians, is that the, the five problems that we have addressed may not look exactly the same, but for the most part, it is like a half a step to being like, this is a problem that we have in today's time. So I think this, as we approach this, as we start to look at 1 Corinthians 15 in this first half, what we need to like kind of wrestle with is the problem that we find ourselves in, oftentimes around this idea of resurrection. There's kind of a pendulum that we swing on. If you grew up or uh, came to know Jesus in like 80s, 90s Christianity, there rightfully was a huge swing towards evangelism. We can have all the qualms that you may want to have with where the evangelical church has ended up, but the thing that they have gifted us that we need to praise them for and hold tightly to is the importance of the proclamation of the good news. And kind of putting it in some sense at forefront, that this is the call that we see in the New Testament, that you would go and preach the good news, that you would go and proclaim that the kingdom has come. If you read all four Gospels, they all end with this mandate, that you would go and preach the good news in some form, fashion, or the other. That is the like thrust of it all, acts is the, the church taking up the mandate and we're seeing what happens when they run with it. We as believers and as a church can never escape that that is part of what we're called to, is to proclaim the good news. And I think that the evangelical church did a really good job of that. Where I think some of the upbringing that I had growing up and the way that I was taught to understand that was that the pendulum swung way over here and that we got so obsessed with people making a decision to follow Jesus that we made following Jesus all about what happened then. Because we understood that resurrection was a vital part of the gospel. And that without resurrection, there is no Christian faith. I'll say that again. Without the resurrection of Jesus, what Paul is getting at, like that is the thesis of 1 Corinthians 15, and in a lot of ways, that is the mark of the entire book that we have spent all summer walking through and I would argue it is the underlying mark of much of the resurrection or much of Christianity it is the resurrection without the resurrection Christianity is pretty much meaningless Paul would say it's completely meaningless and so we understood that as a church for generations, and we doubled down on that. And what that did is then we then focused on a gospel that was pretty much only about that aspect of re resurrection. This is the knock on your door, the track that you find on the road. It is the moment where, you know, so maybe something tragic happens, and someone asks the question, if you died tonight, where would you go? I don't know why this just came to my mind and I'm going to share it because I think it's funny. But I don't know if any of you did the hell escape things instead of haunted houses in October, your church. And you would go through this terribly traumatizing thing that we should not have been putting children through. Like, I don't know why we did it and thought this was a great idea. But at the end, the whole crux was like, and if this was you, where would you go tonight? So now, what I like about that, so I don't just make fun of it, is that there is a real wrestling with, like, have you made this active decision with your life to follow Jesus? Because it has real implications to your life. And that matters. We, 
being more enlightened and cool and understanding the errors and the ways of our forefathers have swung way over here. And now we have made Jesus really therapeutic. We've made it really about self-help. We love the Enneagram. It's so good. Jesus can change your life today. We love emotionally healthy spirituality. I'm making fun of myself here, not you. I'm the one that leads this church in a lot of ways alongside of Kyle. And I'm the one that implements these things. These are where my sermons land. I just want life to be abundant and rich and good now. It's a, the kingdom is about now. It's here. We're a part of it. God's life for you is meant to be experienced now. And then when somebody wants to bring up this whole resurrection bit over here, I'm like, yeah, we can talk about that. You want to get coffee? We'll explain it. You know, like, I, I live in that. I believe this to be true. But I would much rather just talk about, like, this. I'll make fun of myself and say, I would lean towards, like, a, a self-help almost kind of reality, although I wouldn't want to call it that. But it's about making my life better. It's about making my life good. And we swing in pendulum. And so then over here, resurrection is like this kind of like metaphorical idea that like your life can be rebirthed in the here and now. The problem with that is, is it becomes really easy then to kind of do the same thing with Jesus' resurrection. Well, it's kind of a metaphorical idea. He was a good teacher. It's about the death of self and the way that that allows you to be raised again and you really don't need to do all of that Jesus stuff because it may not all really be true anyways. If you don't want to stand firm in the resurrection, what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 15 is then they're probably right. You really don't need to mess with all that Jesus stuff. It's the reality of it. Why would you be unified with someone that you are totally at odds with philosophically if the resurrection is not real. I'll be honest, I don't have a lot of good reasons for you. There might be some. I'm not saying there are zero. And I'm not saying it's impossible to not be a follower of Jesus and be unified with someone you completely disagree with philosophically and have a totally different worldview from them. I'm just saying it's going to be really difficult to continue to push towards that because eventually you would go, I mean, what does it really matter? Why would you abstain from certain things and remain sexually, in, uh, live into a sexually in integrate life if the resurrection's not real? If this isn't all real, then why would you? I don't know. I, don't, I, I have some reasons. I think that it's possible. And there are people that do it, that, that are kind, loving, good-hearted human beings that live with a certain type of sexual integrity that looks very similar to Christianity. But if this whole thing's not true, then I, it is hard. It's hard to convince somebody. It's hard to convince somebody to sacrifice of themselves again and again, to give themselves over in love to die to themselves, to submit to the people around them. It's hard for someone to imagine a relationship that they would find themselves in where they would say, you know what, yeah, this doesn't work for me, so like, why would I stay in this? Why would I continue to be your friend if it's not really like good for me? There are reasons. There are, there are people that do it. But it would be hard. 
What Paul is saying is throughout the book of Corinthians, he's calling people to this profound way of living that is different than and almost like difficult to understand from a human perspective. He's saying you need to live into this way because the resurrection is real, because Jesus has opened up a new reality and a new way of being and existing and of living. And what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, in his language, paraphrasing here, is if you cannot believe that the dead are being resurrected, then Jesus himself cannot be resurrected. So there was a cultural debate around, could people be raised from the dead? And Paul is saying, well, if they can't, then that would mean Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And what he's saying is, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, paraphrase from one of my professors, then line up the cocaine. Like, in other places, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then like, enjoy the mess out of life. Do what makes you happy. Don't sacrifice yourself. I'm going to be more sympathetic here in a minute. But this is what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15. Live your life. YOLO, if that's still cool. Was that 2012 when we said YOLO? YOLO. Like, do it. Push all that you have into making yourself happy and enjoying it. Because this is the only life you get. You got one shot. Make the most of it. Make the best of it. If something upsets you, like, why? What does it matter? Move on with it. Because if the resurrection is not real, then Christ is not real, and we're all liars and fools for pursuing this thing that promises the hope of resurrection. And then he will further say, but Christ is raised from the dead. We do believe that. And because we believe that, then we think what happens here and now matters in resurrection. Because if you live over on this end and you want to make everything about resurrection, then in the end times and that you will be raised from the dead, then the temptation is to say, well, none of this life here matters. And Paul is trying to hold the two in tension. He's trying to say, no, 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 no. All of what you do here and now matters because your body will be resurrected. What you do with your body now matters because it will be raised again and it will be brought before the Lord. What you do matters because it has some sort of connection and your body matters and your materiality matters. And so the way we live as Christians matters because resurrection is real. We have to hold firmly to this idea of resurrection. What I would also want to say is that we got to be careful when we hold on to the reality of resurrection to not be dismissive of death. If you focus solely on the idea that we will be resurrected, then I think it makes it very easy for us to sort of like move past this idea that like death is final. But yet what we see in scripture is a God that grieves over death, that is pained by death. And in a year like this past year, I think it would be wrong as us as believers to see so much death and disease and destruction around us and to be dismissive of it. And to say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter that much. I recently, uh, two, three months ago, I did the graveside service for my aunt that passed away. And when I was reading and just kind of like processing like some of the things that I would think about and want to do, there was a, a Jewish 
was a guy who wrote a book, and, and he was quoting a Jewish friend of his that came to a Christian funeral. And afterwards, she responded to him and said, what is wrong with you guys? Like, that you wouldn't grieve the loss of this person. And I think as Christians, we can have a tendency to do that. We don't grieve for the world around us. This is not what God's, in, God's intent is. And what Paul is saying is that death is the great last enemy of God's kingdom. Because death was never meant to be. It grieves God. And it should grieve us. We should be pained by death and disease and destruction. And what we get the call to do is that this reality of Jesus be true, then we get to promote a life that points to the life of the kingdom. But we are not dismissive, or we do not treat death like as a trivial or trite or some sort of speed bump onto the road of God's great life. We understand it. And we approach it and, and we grieve with those around us and we grieve that it is not the way things are meant to be, but we do not grieve as those without hope. We grieve as ones that do have hope. And in a year like this, like I just couldn't preach a sermon on this without saying something to that regard, where we've seen more death around us in the past year than like our country has ever experienced, that the world has ever experienced. Hundreds of thousands of people dying around us. And that's something that we as Christians should be bothered by. Because this is not the way things are meant to be. And our hearts should be broken when we hear of these things. Because we know that resurrection life is what God intends. And there's mystery that starts to get involved here, right? Well, if we believe that the dead will be raised again, then why would we grieve? Because it's not God's intention that we would have to suffer through something like that. And yet we do. And we also simultaneously believe that we will be raised again. And that our lives and our bodies will experience God in His fullness. This is mysterious. This is difficult to wrap our minds around. But we cannot be followers of Jesus and we cannot be a church that centers ourselves as people of Scripture and of the book without holding on to this. And if we are going to hold on to this, if we are going to believe this to be true, then our lives are ordered and structured and centered around this reality and way of living that Jesus has called us to. I hammer this point home again and again because there is a lot of what we've talked about in 1 Corinthians that does not always make sense, that challenges common sensibilities, and I totally get it. It challenges my sensibilities. There are things in Corinthians that we are called to that I go like, I, why? Like, why do we have to do that? That doesn't always make sense. And I stand on and I hold to that it, it won't make sense unless you give yourself to this first. And what I want to say in that is that we as a church and as a people that follow Jesus, that your job is not to run around and convince people of all these other things first and then later tag on the ideas about Jesus and resurrection and the gospel and the kingdom and all of this. Our foremost and primary task is to captivate people with this new reality that Jesus intends us to live into. And as people are captivated by that reality 
they then naturally and on their own will begin to ask questions of what does it look like to live a life that is in line with and that allows me to step into that reality, over that threshold, out of the way that I am living and into the way that I need to be living. And I think too often we get it backwards. We push the morality onto people and the, and the practices and the ways without first captivating them with the beauty of the gospel and the announcement that Jesus has ushered in a new way of living and a new reality. And sometimes that means we have to then not completely deconstruct, but we have to help people along the way understand that the reality that they're living in is capable of being better. But if we live most of our lives worried about fear and worried, lived with anxiety and wondering how it is that we will ever fulfill all this and we have to tick this box and mark that and check here and live in these certain bounds then that's not a very captivating way of living or being or existing. But because of the hope of resurrection, we are given the ability and the opportunity and the chance to live a life that is hopeful. And we live and make choices out of the hope of that new reality that we hold tight to. Instead of this other thing where we're just trying to like scoot by enough until we can make it until the end when everything will be made new. But we have to believe that things are being made new here and now. That we can be followers of Jesus. Because as we've said, it is about the way and the means by which we do these things that matter more than the what that we do. And I would add to that that the, the how matters as much as the what. Because here's what I want to say. I said I would be more sympathetic in a make a lot of funny jokes. Um, and, and I think that, you know, when you paint with broad brushstrokes, things can seem really obvious. Of course, if you, the resurrection's not real, go do what you want. There are some of you that I would look at if you came to me deconstructing and falling apart that I love and I care and I have a rapport with you that I would say, yeah, okay, that's fine. You can leave the church, but then like leave it all because you know, you know the sense of morality, you know what you're leaving. And so abandon it all if you're going to abandon it. I would say that differently than someone coming in the church, right? Like there's a, there's a nuance here. Because here's the reality is a lot of you know people that don't follow Jesus that are more kind, more hospitable, more loving than some of the people that you grew up with in church or maybe even are sitting next to now and just don't look at them right now, okay? This was part of my story. And this is why I think this matters to me so much. I grew up in a loving, caring church Good people wanted to love Jesus, wanted to follow Jesus. But mostly I was taught moral behavior was what, like only Christians could be good people. They didn't explicitly say that, but that, that was the message I received. It was not explicitly stated. So, good chuckles here. I thought that if you voted Democrat and smoked weed, like you just couldn't be a good person. Like it wasn't morally or ethically possible that you could be kind, hospitable, loving, caring, thoughtful if you... We're one of those types of people, right? And then, as I got older, I begin to experience, and I'm sure many of you have experienced this as well, some of the people that I was taught that couldn't be good people were actually better friends, more thoughtful, more caring, and more hospitable to me and wanted to know me in a deeper way than the people that I went to church with. Again, not trying to throw huge stones at anyone. This presents a conundrum for us. Because what this is saying is that you can be a good person and not follow Jesus. 
There are reasons for which why someone would stay in the unity and the bond of marriage other than just Jesus followers. All along, I was trying to say, it is possible. I just think without Jesus, it's really, really difficult and hard, okay? There are reasons that people would do this. I guess I'm enough of a humanist, if that means anything to you. Like, there's enough teaching in me there that, like, I think that maybe just, like, being human is, like, and being kind is good for the greater human experience. So, if you can be a good person, then what we're getting at is that this is not just about morality or ethics or, or behavior change. And this also means that lifestyle evangelism, if you think that you can just sort of live a good life and be a good citizen and people will just naturally come to know Jesus, is probably not going to work out too well in your favor. And that is a giant challenge to me. Because that's the way I kind of want to live my life. You can draw to mind now in this moment or call to mind probably a relationship you have of someone that you really, really love. You get along with them really well. You think they're a great, wonderful person. You see their kindness, their joy. You see a hope in their life, and they don't follow Jesus. And you probably, at many times in your life, have eschewed from, if you're as scared as I am, actually talking to Jesus about that person. Because you look at him, you go, well, your life's pretty good. You're pretty kind. You're, like, you tick a lot of the boxes that I would say living Jesus is. And so then I just have kind of convinced myself in a lot of these relationships, well, if I just continue to like almost outgood them, out-enjoy life, out-abundance them, that eventually they'll kind of go like, hey, uh, why do you seem to have everything that I have? You want to talk about that? No. Like if what we have to realize is that eventually the gospel itself is a proclamation and an announcement. The gospel requires words because these things can exist outside of it. But what you and I would probably say and what I would think is that the people that are doing this, I think they're pursuing truth. And I actually think that it is ripe and fertile soil to present the gospel to because they get it. Some of the more difficult people, and this is all over the gospels, is the people that would, like, you would say... You say you love Jesus. Man, like, I don't experience the love of Jesus in and through you. If you've ever had those conversations, that's like way harder to talk to that person. And Jesus says, and this is a mystery that we hold on to, that there will be some that say, Lord, Lord, did I not perform miracles and cast out demons in your name? Did I not pray and worship exalting you? He says that he'll look at him and say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And others will say, Lord, Lord, I didn't, I didn't know you. I, I never encountered you. And yet, in those moments, it was me that you were feeding. It was me that you were near. He'll say, welcome, my good and faithful servant. So there's mystery here. And we have to live into that. And we have to be okay with that. But as those of us that have grasped and felt and encountered the resurrected Christ in and through one another and in through moments of metaphysical experience, divine interaction, because I believe wholeheartedly that there is a traffic between heaven and earth, that this resurrected Christ is, is interacting with us. And if we've experienced it, then why would we not attempt to invite others into that experience with us? And this doesn't mean... You have to go stand on the street corners. But if resurrection is real, 
and we do believe in it, then why would we not stake our whole life on it is what Paul's getting at. Give everything to it. And if you don't think it's real, I'm kind of with Paul here. Like, I, I probably wouldn't spend most of my Sunday mornings here. But here's what I know to be true, is that in my own life, I have experienced the power of resurrection. I have seen and witnessed what it means when someone grasps hold of it and when God intervenes into someone's life. I've seen it happen. I've experienced it myself. I've seen what peace in tumultuous times looks like. I've seen what being able to grieve and hold on to joy simultaneously, what that experience has been. And so because of that, because I have that hope of resurrection, then what it has done for me is it has given me a hope for life. And so then when I look at death and disease, I have to believe that there is something more to life than that because that is not the experience of resurrection, which I know to be true. When I encounter people that are walking through difficult relationships, marriages on the brink, what I have to hold out for is that it can change because resurrection can change it. When I have broken relationships with family members and experience that pain and that tension, what I have to be able to do is to hope that that can change. I have to be able to believe that my life can change in the here, in the now, because of resurrection. Kyle and I were talking about this in the office a couple weeks ago. And we were talking about these ideas that like change has to be real, that there has to be some sort of sanctification that goes on. And I was talking to Kyle, and I said, Kyle, please, please promise me that you too believe that like I will not be this anxious and like worked up and like self-doubting when I'm in my 40s and 50s. Like, promise me that the Lord will intervene in my life and that if I keep working at it and that I keep giving myself to the practices and the rhythms of resurrection, that maybe I won't be so angry with my kids for no reason. Like, promise me that I can enjoy life in a different kind of way where I know that, like, I'm not so, like, tied up to what people think about me. Because I don't know about you, but I'm tired of dying these thousands of little deaths along the way. I'm tired of being killed again over and over as I try to figure out the way this life looks. And what I want is to experience the abundant life of God. I want to have that peace, that hope, that joy, that patience, that ability to be long-suffering, that ability to be able to give myself over to someone so that they can experience the same love that I have experienced from others. And in doing so, I have to be able to tell people about Jesus and this hope of resurrection because I believe it's true. And I believe it's good. And I believe it matters. And I hold on tightly to it as Paul does and says that if that is true, then everything else in our life changes. The lens in which we see the whole world changes. Our daily interactions change because of the hope of resurrection. Our relationships change when we see it through the lens of the gospel, knowing that Christ came and died and was resurrected. His whole life, all of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John is an announcement. It's not just his death and resurrection just then at the end that we will sometimes participate in. It's that all of it 
There's this kingdom life that is being ushered in and that has been ushered in through Jesus. As the band comes up, we're going to take communion. And each and every Sunday that we take communion, this is what we celebrate. We celebrate this hope and this idea that Christ lived a life, that he came and that he dwelt among us, and that he sacrificed all that he had and that he was, and that he did so in order that we might participate in this kingdom life and participate in the hope of resurrection. And so every Sunday we come and we take a piece of the bread and the cup and we receive the body of Christ broken for us, the blood poured out for us in the forgiveness of our sins in order that we might be brought into the beauty and the depth of this resurrection life. Knowing that resurrection is true. Knowing that what we do matters now because it matters then. Knowing that ultimately at the end, Christ will redeem. Christ will make new. So I'm going to invite you as the band plays to come up and take a piece of the bread and the cup. And if you're uh, uncomfortable with grabbing a piece of bread or some cups that have been open, we've got our... Uh, COVID-compliant communion cups over here that you can partake in as well if you would rather do that. Uh, we want to be able to create a space for all of us to worship that is uh, comfortable and easy for all of us. We also have gluten-free bread over here uh, for those of you that cannot partake in the gluten. Uh, but come down the aisle, take a piece, hold on to it, and then I'll come back up and I'll lead us in the receiving of the elements as we partake in one body and one bread as we are one body in Christ and in the hope of resurrection. Amen.